new beginning. Welcome, everybody. This is episode four of the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram, alongside Joshua Black. Hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for listening again, and uh, we hope to have a, a great episode today. We are here with Mujan Nesani. I love that name. She's doing her MA in psychology. What is your thesis? I'm looking at the effect of mindfulness on well-being and how time plays a role in that. Wow, okay. I think we'll get more into that as we uh, move forward. But first, it's like, let's talk about this name of yours. It's a beautiful name. You don't really Thank hear you. that, like those, those names, first and last names, in our culture a lot. So, like, do they have a special meaning for you? Or uh, did, like, how did your parents come about picking those names? So, um, it's Farsi. And the last name is from a place, so way back down the line. We were from a specific city. It was Nason, and that's how we got the Nasani. And then my name is also, um, it's an old, I believe, an old Persian name. And it has two meanings. One is about some flower, I believe. And okay. the other one I'm not quite sure about. <laughs> so my mom keeps telling me, and I always forget. Mm. But it's definitely a flower. Okay. Of sorts. Nice. So we can call you a flower. <laughs> flower City. Flower yeah. City. I flower like that. Flower, that'd be a good name. If you're doing, like, for your, if you want to have, like, start your own Facebook group, Flower City. Yeah, that could be your Instagram account. Yeah, Flower City, yeah, at Flower City. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was thinking more like my band. Oh, okay. Like, yeah, absolutely. It's very, like, kind of upbeat. That's cool. Are you a singer, or do you play some instruments? Not at all. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> well, now you have a reason to start a band. <laughs> exactly. The name is the hardest part. I have heard that. Yeah, so now you get the name, and you just need to find some people. So if there's anyone out there that wants to join a band with uh, Mujan, uh, here we go. Here's yeah. your chance. We like flowers. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Let's get in into this. Um, I love your topic. As soon as I saw it, he was letting me know what was about mindfulness. Um, I read some books on it, but obviously not at the level that you're doing it at. What brought you to this? So um, I've always been interested in positive psychology. And in my undergrad, there was a course. And it was a seminar course. There was about 20 people in it. And I didn't have a lot of options <laughs> as to what courses to take. And so I took the one that was on mindfulness. I was like, okay, like small class. It should be fun. Um, and the instructor there is an actual mindfulness instructor and she works in the medical field and kind of practices mindfulness. And so I took the class and right then and there I fell in love with it and I really enjoyed it. And so I decided that that's kind of where I was going to direct my research and everything. So for the last two years, it's kind of been focused around more mindfulness and the kind of history of it and how we use it here. Positive psychology is a relatively new field. Am I correct on that? Yeah. Um, I remember reading about it. There's a major university in the States that I think focuses on it. I forget what his name is. Uh, big guy, big name. Are you thinking of Siegelman? Yes. Yeah. Is it Stanford? Yes. Yeah. Um, I was looking at his course because he has a whole course on positive psychology and uh, super cool. Really interesting. Yeah. It's a, good, it's a new field, but it's a very interesting field. It's kind of a nice opposite to the rest of psychology going on. Yeah. It's been beaten up about how to fix problems and whatnot and... So would, you, would you call the, the other aspects of psychology negative psychology? No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't, but... Yeah, that's yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but no, this one's definitely more focused on the other end of it. Right. Yeah, it's a pretty much like a, uh, okay, we worked on, like a, going to the doctor and symptoms, and okay, let's, let's just get you relieved and uh, free from pain. Uh, and then now, let's, if you want to go the other end, let's work on optimizing yourself and, you know, getting you on another level. Yeah, so I think some people might not know what positive psychology is. So could you just maybe just talk a little about maybe what it is? Sure. 
Um, so positive psychology is mostly, it's very similar to what you said. Exactly. It's okay. So there's certain people that are thriving versus other people who are, you know, you regularly going about their day and it's, well, we want everybody to thrive. So how do we go from what it is now to going to that higher level and kind of experiencing those positive outcomes in our life, the ones that we do want to get um, and kind of elevating it from what we have now to where we want to be or just kind of studying why some people are at that level and some people aren't and the factors that are associated with that. Okay, so it's like happiness and joy. Yeah, positive aspects, kind of those who are most productive at work, at home, better physical health, that kind of stuff. Okay, wow. There's a lot of stuff we talk about there, but we got to focus on this uh, one area of yours. So um, going back, so where did you do your undergrad? Was it here at Brock or was it somewhere else? No, so I actually did my undergrad at University of Toronto on the downtown campus. Okay. So I was down, down there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Was it a good experience? It was great. I loved it. I lived there um, actually on campus for four years. Oh, that's something yeah. I've never got a chance to do. St. George. St. George? Yeah. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Did you live on campus here? I have lived on campus, yeah. My first year, I went to University of Ottawa, so I stayed in residence. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing because... Uh, it's such a social climate, social, like, it's almost like a test. It's like, all right, now, hey, guys, you have to study and do exams and all that. And by the way, you're going to be uh, set up with 30 other young people, and you're going to want to go out every night. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So do you think that it, it hinders people in their journey uh, with academia, or does it actually have some benefit? Um, I think... It hinders you a little bit, but in the long run, it's not bad. I know in first year, my marks were not as great as they should have been, but I think there's a lot of social bonds and a lot of things I learned in first year, kind of living away from home and being in that climate that allowed me to excel in my second, third, and fourth year. Oh, nice. I kind of get that balance between how social I want to be, how to say no to certain situations, and be like, no, I actually have to prioritize my studies tonight versus when you don't need to. Yeah. Um, I thought it was a great experience. I always recommend doing it for someone who thinks that they want to at least um yeah a lot of you make a lot of friends there you kind of learn how to live with other people which is something you don't necessarily do if you don't go to residence you meet a lot of different types of people and you learn just kind of how to get by whether you like someone or don't like someone get along with them or don't and i like how you're saying like yeah the life experience itself is a beautiful thing and you, you got a chance to learn basically how to say no to certain situations to further a goal that you have. And I think we were just talking about this today, right, Sean? About like saying no to different circumstances um, as you move forward in life and how difficult that can be. Like there's no class on how to say no, right? Like it's- <laughs> Yeah, understanding what's important to you and your happiness and well-being, And then um, when uh, tasks or things or, you know, feedback comes your way and then being able to navigate through that and say, ah, this might not be good for me at this point, you know? rather than uh, whatever it is you do, people please, or this or that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so that's amazing. Um, so moving forward, so then you, did you apply to only Brock, or did you apply to other places at Brock after you said, I wanted to do mindfulness? Um, I applied to a couple other universities. Um, there's not, again, there wasn't that many professors who were in positive psycho- psychology looking to take someone in, mm-hmm. right? Because it all depends on who can take grads or who can. Um, is that how it works? Sorry? Like, how does it work for actually applying to grad school? I think a lot of people who maybe are listening to this, um, maybe in undergrad, they might want to know um, what, like the approach that you know maybe it's it's good for them to take. Yeah. So the general approach, especially for psychology, uh, when you're going into research, 
it might not be the same for others, but I know some programs, it's mainly when you're going into research, this is kind of the structure, but it's you look at the different universities that have the program you want, and then you look at their list of uh, professors, and usually the, um, the actual university will post a list of professors taking on students. So because research is fun-based mostly, some professors can't take students every year or they have too many uh, students because they took an extra or whatever because they really liked that student's research interests so they took them on and now they can't take another person. So you take a look at the list of professors and then you see who's accepting. And what I usually do is I go, I'm like, okay, this person is in this field. I'll look at a couple of their recent papers to see what direction their research is headed and what kind of research they've already done. And I pick about probably two that I'm interested in and I'll email them and I'll say, hi, I'm interested in your research. I'm, I'm interested in learning a little bit more about what you do. Kind of start a dialogue with them. And this is usually beginning of fourth year. Okay. And then when applications are rolling out, you email the professor and say, hey, I'm interested in uh, working with you. I was wondering if we could set up an interview or set up um, a meeting where we could talk again further. And then you apply to the school. And usually you need someone to be willing to take you on to actually get accepted. Yeah. And so you have to apply and then the professor will take a look at your application and say yes or no. And if they say yes, then usually you will get an offer. Nice. So it seems um, it's not as easy as a lot of people think where you just apply and you get in. There's a lot of hard work and there's a lot of fight for a small position. Or is it like some professors only have one position available? And there's like hundreds that are um, wanting wanting to get in. So congratulations on getting in, right? You must have yeah. did something, right? I hope so. Yeah, and here you are, right? And so, and uh, who's your supervisor here? Um, Dr. Michael Busseri. Nice. And uh, what does he do? So he's very interested in how individuals view their life um, unfolding over time. So it's kind of... It's more subjective well-being over time, like past, present, and future. Okay, so he doesn't do mindfulness. No. You're bringing that in yes. to his sort of area. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. That's very interesting. Yeah. It's a new look on what he's doing. Yeah. He said that it was somewhere he wanted to go, and it's because it's a relatively new thing that's just being talked about, or has been in the news only recently, that he was excited that there was a student interested in it, and he wanted to do it a couple of years down the line anyway. So he said it was a good fit. Nice. So, yeah, so I guess now it's a big question, right? Why are you interested in mindfulness? Uh, right? This is like yeah. a, not a lot, like you're young and you don't see a lot of people. Yeah, and um, I think people, I don't know, I, I feel like uh, maybe some people haven't taken it seriously in the past and maybe it's starting to. Yeah. Do you feel that way or is academia <laughs> grasping it a little more, mindfulness um, or positive psychology? I think academia is grabbing at it a little bit more because it's more in use. I think because it's gained so much popularity, the academic world is kind of like, oh, now we actually have something to study because when a lot of people aren't doing it, who's your population you're looking at? You can't really go up to five people and make a study about it and be like, oh, this is going to apply yeah. to everyone. Yeah. Um, but I think it's when it got picked up by hospitals and more of the medical field, I think that's what caused oh, the kind right. of uproar of everybody talking about it. What is it? How does it work? How does it help? So what are the hospitals, like in the sense of picking up, what do you mean by that? Like they're teaching their staff or they're teaching the patients? Um, not necessarily. Certain hospitals will have mindfulness interventions. So they'll, they'll put it into patient care. And one of the like symptom preventative uh, measures or posts, they'll say, okay, well, take this medication, do this, but also attend mindfulness uh, 
classes once a week, whether wow. the hospital offers wow. it Great or idea. yeah, yeah, it's a, they're using it almost as a form of therapy right now. Do but, they? Do you, so we have it in the hospital. Do we have it in schools too? Yes. Like, is it is that like a growing movement also? Yeah, so a lot of the schools, they have multi-faith centers where you can kind of get a room and instructors will actually come in and they'll teach mindfulness broadcast on that. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, that's very interesting. Uh, one of my best friends, uh, Irfan, he works for a software company. And in this company, it's in Toronto. And they do little things like that where they'll uh, introduce uh, maybe a Buddhist monk to come in and speak to everybody and, you know, incorporate that into their business world. Because I think... Slowly, the best companies are starting to realize that if your employees are happy, engaged, you know, happy with their home life, then they're better producers. They do better at their work. They do better uh, working with others. It's a different environment. So I can see that in the corporate world as well. So, yeah, back to the initial topic of mindfulness. What exactly is it? So there's a little bit of debate in the field as to what it comprises of and the whole kind of actual breakdown, but the thing that's most commonly agreed upon is that mindfulness is a present focused awareness of your moment to moment experiences. So it's really the here and now and focusing on what's happening in your life right now. Wow. Uh, is that difficult to do? Cause like, I know just like listening to you, I'm thinking about what I'm going to say next. I'm thinking about, you know, I'm kind of hungry. So I'm thinking about the future. Um, do you find it difficult in the sense are you finding a lot of people find it difficult to, to reach that? I think it's a hard thing to do, especially in our day and age where everything has become multitasking, constantly thinking, okay, so I have to post this and I have to respond to this email, but I have to do this for, you know, tomorrow. But right now I need to talk and I need to focus and I need to think, you know, I'm not mumbling. Like I have to, you have to do so many things all at once that it's quite hard to just focus on the one task. And it takes a lot of deliberate effort to kind of be like, oh, my, like my mind's somewhere else. Okay, bring it back. Oh, I'm, you know, thinking of something else. Okay, no, 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 come back. Constantly having to train yourself to do that until it becomes a habit, okay. I find is quite difficult. But once you get started, it does get easier and easier as you go. Right. That's interesting. So it is like, it's, like it's, it's not like something you just pick up that's like, oh, like a, I'm a mindfulness sort of guy. It's like you got to train yourself um, and actually want and desire uh, that, that peacefulness, I think, that um, you're only hearing other people have. Because you haven't received it yet, right? So you don't really know what you're getting into. You're seeing other people have done it and it worked for them, like feeling this peace. And so you go after that and it's not working. So I think a lot of people probably would give up after a certain bit because that's sort of a culture, right? If it's not easy, like then why, why do it? Yeah, exactly. It does take uh, some effort and it is something that you have to want to do to reach those kind of really positive outcomes. But some people are more generally mindful than others. Mm -hmm. They're better able to focus in on what they're doing and just that one task and stick with it and then kind of come out of that and do so, uh, something else. I mean, we could all probably think of someone who's way more distracted in our friend group than other people. <laughs> like the person right, who yeah. can sit down and do their work for three hours, not touch the phone, you know, not really deal with anything else, but just do their homework versus the person who's posting on Facebook while they're studying, listening to music, or has Netflix on half a screen and like writing an essay on the other. Mm. So you, there's there's variations even in just people's level of mindfulness in general, even before they start doing interventions. Okay. Yeah, it's, uh, it's almost like we've been gifted with this amazing brain that can do so many different things. And once we learn something, then we're like, all right, that's on cruise control. I know that. And we multitask. But then that, the negative side is that is of that is we're always doing it now. So now we're like, okay, we're making lunch, but we're thinking about 
uh, having to pick up the kids or whatever it is. You know, there's all these things that you, in your brain you're, you're doing and that can lead to negative consequences because then you get away from just the beauty of just focusing in and grabbing a thought in the present moment, being aware of your surroundings. Oh, there's a clock there. Oh, look, there's a little breeze. Those are like things that help you stay in the moment. All right. So do you, like, how did that come about though? Like, so you just learn about this or did you personally have moments of mindfulness? You're like, wow, this is amazing. So for me, the course that I actually took, the seminar, it turned out to be, or the way the prof, um, the prof organized it was every week we did a mindfulness exercise and we went through the eight week mindfulness program. And so we would come and we would share in class kind of our experiences throughout the week, what we found, we would do meditation together in the class. Someone would either try it and they would run a different type of meditation that we weren't going to do. And it was, we got an opportunity to kind of be the instructor as well as having our professor who's an instructor in it, have her do a meditation with us. And so we did it every single week. And I learned not only what meditation was and the benefits of it, but I also learned how to do it in the process. So it was kind of hand in hand for me. Okay, nice. And so what are the benefits? We're talking about the positive outcomes. Are there, what are the positive outcomes that you see in the research? So a lot of research has shown that those who are higher mindfulness ruminate less. So they, they don't really worry as much about the same topic over and over again. They're not kind of fixated. Oh, I hate it. that, eh? Yeah, oh, we just man. talked about that this morning. <laughs> Yeah, so there's a lot of negative effects of doing that, right? You can kind of get stuck with that one thing and it can bother you. They say, oh, don't worry about it. Don't think about it. It's keep like, you it's right hard. Yeah, it'll, you know, affect your sleep. It'll affect everything, right? Okay. What you talk with your friends, you know, you'll be talking about the same stuff over and over again. People are like, I've already heard this. And you haven't done anything about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we see that a lot of people say they experience better emotion regulation. They can kind of stop themselves and kind of, get a better control of how they're feeling and evaluate what's going on with themselves a little better, kind of feel a little bit more in touch with what's going on. You find some better physical health. People are feel better in the morning. They feel like they can get more done. They feel like they're more efficient. Um, I believe it's shown that they actually are more um, productive during the day as well. And it, you're, you're sleeping better. The same kind of stuff you see when people talk about yoga and those kind of Okay. Uh, more meditative kind of um, practices you find with mindfulness meditation as well. And so what would you, um, are there any negative outcomes to mindfulness that you can see? Um, not that I've seen in the research, to be honest. I, I wouldn't say that there might not be, because when you become so present focused and so focused on the here and now, our world is so so much of planning and what you're going to do in the future and your past does shape you in my opinion so i don't know if it's all benefits i just haven't actually seen any in the research uh on that same subject what is well-being and what how do you measure that so there's different types of well-being the one that i specifically look at is subjective well-being and in the research they say that it has three different things and it's uh how satisfied you are with your life how often you experience positive affects, the positive emotion, and how frequently you experience negative affects, so negative emotion. And this is uh, research by Ed Diener, who's huge in subjective well-being, and he kind of started this discussion of what it's made of. And so that's the specific type that I look at, and it's just how, I think of a good way to describe it so hard after yeah. science just keeps defining it differently, but it's, I guess how well you're doing 
right? They say the best combination of the three is high life satisfaction, um, high positive affect, and low negative affect. So you're experiencing a lot more of the like happiness, enjoyment, that kind of stuff, as well as you're very satis- or you're more satisfied with your life than others, yeah. and you're experiencing that negative emotion less. So, so again, very subject subjective. Yeah. How you as an individual feel like you're doing. Exactly. Yeah. There is physical well-being and the other types, but the one that I specifically look at is subjective well-being. How do you think you're doing? And how does that relate to how they maybe, is there a way to actually measure how they're doing? I guess for physical symptoms and stuff like that. Um, like, is there a way to measure that and compare to see if how you think you're doing matches how you truly are doing? Um, I'm sure there is, because yeah. if you were to look at the subjective well-being scales and then look at it like a doctor report and kind of look at, okay, physically how you're doing and then do other mental tests, you could definitely do that as a study. I haven't particularly looked into it. Okay. I wouldn't be surprised if there is, but I don't think it would be too difficult to do it if there wasn't. All right, so uh, um, when it comes to well-being, you, you're looking at specifically um, how life unfolds. Right? right. And so how is how is that? So if someone's rating, let's say, uh, high on that, how does it, what does that relate to uh, in other areas of their life? Okay, so um, research by my supervisor, again, looks specifically at how you rate your past life satisfaction, your present life satisfaction, and your future. Um, if you were to rate all three right now, pretty much. And so there's different trends and you find different kind of slopes, but it seems that if you view your past as being a lot worse than the present and you find your future to be about similar as your present, that you experience more optimal um, symptoms or outcomes. So we're talking like you're more satisfied with your social network, you have a bigger social network, you're experiencing positive affect more, you're experiencing negative affect less. It's the same trend you see in optimists. So it seems like it's associated more to kind of your more social aspect of your life, but also kind of your emotions and how you're feeling. That in itself is also difficult too, though, because your perspective on the past can change yep. at any time. Yesterday, I thought, you know, I've had a past event that was terrible and today I'm like hey you know it wasn't so bad yeah <laughs> it's crazy yeah. that's the issue. tough research yeah <laughs> with subjective it's constantly changing it's very you have to be very careful to say okay however you view your past rate that past mm. or how you view this you rate it like that you can't it's really hard to tell someone at this point at this rate how, what you did it's more like think back to whatever you think is your past there's that well-known quote, I think, about uh, a man gets into a river and the river's never the same and the man's never the same. I'm not saying it right, but oh. it's something along that line because the river's always moving. It's always different. Oh, right. When the man yeah. gets in the river, oh. he's never the same either. I think I think it's something that like every time you touch a river, it's different Yeah. because it's always changing. I think that's what you're trying to yeah. do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll have to look that up and <laughs> post that somewhere. <laughs> Right. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I think that's the main thing too in, in life is we're always evolving, changing. Thoughts are changing. We're, we're never the same person. Uh, it's a beautiful thing as well. Yeah, and so when the so that's one slope you're talking about how um, your past you view less than what it is now in the present. You're more hopeful, I guess. Um, is there other slopes that you see, and are they related to anything? Yeah. So the other slope that uh, I got my supervisor has kind of seen most in the research and has found is that those who view their past as not that different to 
present and view their future as a lot better than the present, that they have been more associated with more negative outcomes, so less positive affect. And it's been seen in pessimists or um, with pe- people more with depression. Oh, okay. So you kind of see it as these two different trends where you would almost anticipate it to be the opposite. Yeah, because they have, they're seeing their future as being more hopeful, right? Or, or better. Yeah, so they would oh, almost okay. feel like it's going to have a greater incline. Yeah. Like oh, it's going to get so much better in the future versus people who are like, yeah, it's going to get maybe a little better. It's going to stay the same. So they view the past as negatively. They view the present negatively but they, they're hopeful about, hopeful about the future? It's not necessarily that they view it negatively. It's all in relation to each other. So it's just that the present is a little bit, if not at all, better than their past. And so it's about the same, but their future is going to be a great deal better. And this is all because it's been shown that individuals view their life as getting better and better over time anyway. So everything's in relation to this kind of upward um, slope or upward line where everybody assumes my past is going to be worse than my present and my future is going to be better. Mm-hmm. But it's the degree to which you think what that uh, kind of is associated with these outcomes. So it's how much better is your future, mm-hmm. that part of the slope, and how much better is your present from your past. So those two kind of questions are the biggest things. But in younger adults, at least, you see that upward. When you get to older adults, you'll see a different trajectory. They actually view it as their life is going to get worse. That's so interesting. Yeah. All right, and so now you're combining his work, right, and your work. So what are you hoping to find? I'm hoping to find that there is a relationship. No one's really looked at mindfulness and life satisfaction in this way before. Um, and because mindfulness is such a present-focused construct, I'm really interested to see how that affects how someone views the rest of their life. Because although you're focused on your present, you have a past and you have a future. So what does focusing on the present mean for how it impacts the rest of your life and how specifically how you believe you, the rest of your life is or was and it's going to be? Okay. Yeah, so I'm kind of interested to get that broader picture and take it out of, so your present focus, great, that does a lot for your present. I want to see how that affects how you view the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Are there, do you have any favorite techniques to practice mindfulness? Um, there's... A couple that I quite like, one is the eating, the eating uh, exercise, and that's either, I think in the research or in the intervention, they recommend chocolate or raisin. I find that one really cool because we eat all the, like, everybody eats, right? Um, But so many times I'm eating and thinking of something else. Just to sit down and, like, actually focus on eating. Uh, I quite enjoy that one actually, as well as. And so, so explain that a little bit further. So you just focus on eating. Do you do you like count your chews? Like, is, is there anything like that, or like? Not necessarily. You could. Or you just focus on. Um, you have. There's a lot of audio that can go with it, but it's kind of just okay. Take a bite. How does it feel? How does it feel in your hand? Is it cold? Is it warm? Is it smooth? Is it rough? Hold it up. Can you smell it? What does it smell like? Put it on your tongue. Don't chew yet. What does it feel like? What kind of taste do you get at the beginning? And kind of working your way through the eating process slowly. Okay, well, take a bite. Is it juicy inside? How does it taste now? What kind of textures are you kind of dealing with? Where in your mouth are you chewing? How does it feel on your tongue? How does it feel on your cheek? Kind of just picking up on all the very little things that you just, it's so habit to you now. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I'm looking, I'm just thinking my own life, right? When you're talking and I rush eating, like 
it's almost like a task that you have to get complete, right? And I don't really savor the flavor. I don't smell it. I don't even touch it. So I'm going to try this and then see how it goes. Yeah, I drive and eat. I grab uh, something and as I'm driving, I, I munch on my food. It, that's pretty interesting. I like that because it's like creating a fuller experience. Yeah. It's like adding all the sensory, the visual, the chocolate connoisseurs will know that they say you should smell it first. Yeah. Just to get it all in there, get all the different mm-hmm. smells in your nose. Chocolate has like, what an incredible amount of smells too, apparently. Yeah. I love chocolate, you can tell. I love chocolate too. <laughs> That's why I also really That's like a, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. It gives you reason to eat chocolate. I'm going to practice that today a lot, just so you know. Mindfulness all day with chocolate. Yeah, this lunch, we'll both do it. Lunch time. I should have recommended brushing teeth one. Oh. <laughs> I do the chocolate. All right, so um, it's been, it hasn't probably been like over half hour, I think. Yeah, so I think we'll uh, get into talking about maybe a loss that you had. And so this is sort of the second part of the podcast where we sort of talk about have you experienced any loss and um, what that journey was like. So have you experienced any, any loss in your life? Um, I lost a pet when I was younger. So I had a cute teddy bear hamster when I was younger named Freddie. Uh-huh. He was adorable. But yeah, I did lose him when I was younger. But other than that, I've been fortunate, fortunate not to have experience of personal loss or anyone close to me. Okay. And so what, how old were you as a child? I believe I was, I was in grade seven when he died? I was in grade, sorry, no, I was in grade 8 when he died, and I got him in grade 5 or 6. So oh, okay. Oh. Wow, so that was like a couple of years there. So yeah. what, what were the things that you would do? With, with Freddie? Yeah. Um, he would try to run away. Oh, okay. But so it's, it's, you're playing tag almost. Right? <laughs> yeah. He was really good at it. That's called hostage. <laughs> <laughs> Not tag. <laughs> uh, but we would... Hide and go seek, I guess. <laughs> He was really good at the hiding part. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not so good at the seeking part. You know, um, I don't know. We would. He had this playground in his cage, and you could always buy extensions for hamsters in oh, the cage. Yeah. Oh, and so we would try and like, build ones. When we take, we took him out of his cage at least once a day. So he kind of wasn't stuck in it. We would have him run around our living room or whatever. So we try and create like an outside uh, obstacle course for him and have him like run around and try and go under things and like through toilet paper rolls because teddy bear hamsters are quite small like they're quite thin but their hair makes them look a lot bigger so they can slither in the smallest places and you would not expect it so we would kind of like do little things like that to have him go through and then other than that we kind of just like petted him and just like sit down put him on a pillow and be like just there and like talk to him he obviously didn't talk back to us at the time, but I um I recently got a dog, my first pet, and so I've been learning about building a bond with your animal, your pet, and how that goes. Mm-hmm. And so I know petting and, and stuff like that with an animal can can build that bond. There's there's oxytocin I think that's released that in in the blood of the human, in the brain of the human, and the animal. So that bond gets kind of built more and more. Um, I'm also realizing that you kind of stay in the moment a lot with pets. Did you find that with, with your hamster? Um, I didn't find it at the time, but now that I look back, I would probably agree with that because what I was always worried, like, where is Freddie? Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I wasn't worried where he was. You can't stress about life when you're worrying about Freddie. Exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. It's but at the moment, right? And you want to play with them. Like, in that moment, you're like, oh, what are you going to do now? Yeah. What are you doing now? Uh-oh, I'm going to run this way or I'm going to do this. And I agree with you. You're very kind yeah. of 
well, there with the pet for now because you know at some point you're like okay well I have to go do other stuff so I'm gonna have to play and this is my fun time and you kind of just stay there and you're like ah oh, it's been like 20 minutes. <laughs> Yeah, so I think animals might actually be another thing that provides a mindfulness, right? Like, without knowing it, right? Like, in the sense of being in the moment and just focusing on, on your animal, on your friend. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really interesting. So was that your first pet that you had, or did you have pets prior? Um, it was actually my first pet. I okay, always, so it was a big deal. Right? Yeah, I always wanted a dog. Um, okay. I'm a huge dog person, but because we don't have a lot of yard space at my house, and everybody works and went to school, we didn't get a dog because there wouldn't be someone to walk in, be home alone all day. We all wanted a big dog, which you can't really have in the house until 5 p.m. when someone comes home, and we're all, we were always tired as well. So it was my first pet, and it was the birthday present, and it was super exciting because I wanted a hamster, and Everybody at the time was getting hamsters. It was a hamster craze. Oh, okay. It was a ch- yeah, <laughs> hamster fat, just like pogs. <laughs> yeah, pogs. <laughs> it's nice. true. And who gave you it as a gift? Was it your parents? Uh, yeah, so my parents brought me to the pet store with my brother, and we went and we picked out. Oh, you had to pick it out? Yeah. So it didn't just like come in a box, and you opened it. It was like... No, it was, oh, I want a hamster, and he was like, okay, you can go you and pick it. your hamster. Oh. Well, I was supposed to choose it. My brother chose it. Oh. It was kind of like, you're getting this one. <laughs> okay. Like, you say so. And that's one of those happy memories that you've had <laughs> in your life. And you can think about your past and see that memory. Okay. Like, it was an important thing. It seems small, right? Take your kid to the pet store and get a pet. Well, that's a big moment. You're five. You're yeah, I pet. think, yeah, and it helps. I think, like, cherish animals. As a child, I didn't have any pets. And I think because of that, I never really knew the value of them. And what they could do and only you know like later on to actually have um, my first dog but as a child like I didn't have that experience and I think you know children they can learn and appreciate animals so much easier as a child than as a, an adult so just in that moment right you take them to the zoo you take them all these different places you um, and that's something that I never really had a chance to, to, to do so I think it's really cool you had that opportunity and so did you ever get a another hamster after Freddie died or did you sort of stop um, we talked about it, but I didn't want to get another hamster after Buddy. I had the one, and then life was getting getting busy, and I could. I feel like for me, if I got another hamster, it would be a second Freddy. Okay. And I don't. I don't want a second Freddy. Right. You know what I mean? I would I always want just the memory of the one, and I had one hamster, and he was a great friend and great pet, mm-hmm. and that was that's who he was. And I never got another one after. Okay, so looking about in the let's say in the future, right? five-year plan do you see yourself having a uh, another animal and what would that be um i don't know if i would have one in five years okay. just because i'd probably still be in school probably <laughs> living with my parents okay um but if i do get the yard space i definitely want a dog um, big dog big dog i love big dogs uh i would probably want either a border collie or something because they're like they're big or a great day Oh, not shit. that big. Not that big. <laughs> okay. uh, maybe a husky. It's hard to have a husky here, though. Should we get an old English it. bulldog. Is that what you got? I'm biased to have one. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wish. All right. So uh, now, let's say, like, um, so we talked about your loss. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and I'm sort of here about the loss, but I'm glad you had such a positive experience with Freddie as you move forward. Did you ever have any dreams as a child or as you move forward with Freddie? Not that I recall. I, I don't think I've had any dreams with Freddie. I may have, and then woken up and forgotten about it. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's it's, it's common not to have these dreams. So let's say let's say tonight you go home and you go to sleep. What dream would you want of Freddie tonight? Um, I would probably just want 
one where we were doing the same thing that we did when he was with me, kind of like sitting around and playing. Um, it would be cool if Freddie could talk and just be like, oh, hey, oh, like yeah. I had fun too. And I know like I didn't make this hamster run around for nothing. So like <laughs> yeah. then they hated me kind of thing. I was trying to leave. You kept yeah. pulling me back. <laughs> That's cool. Freddie loved my dad. He would never leave uh, He might leave me. He would uh, never love my dad. That's interesting. But I like that. I like how like he talked because I've had animal dreams of, um, I guess, group dreams. And the animal did talk to uh, the owner. And so I think that's so cool because the dream can be anything. So why wouldn't you talk, right? Yeah. What do you think it would sound like? Is there like a... Ooh, do you have an accent question. or something? Or? I don't think he would have an accent. I think he'd be, like his voice would be a little higher pitched just because they're so small. Oh, okay. Yeah. Not, not Donkey from Trek? No. Eddie, no. Eddie not Eddie Murphy. No. <laughs> no Beverly Hills Cop here. <laughs> Um, yeah, I was. I think it'd be like a little bit high. Okay. But almost like album and chipmunks kind of thing. Not that high. Oh, okay, so a little low net. All right, nice. Yeah. So we're getting an idea. Very like specific range. <laughs> I didn't know I thought of that. We get deep. We get deep. <laughs> <laughs> That's so in terms of like human loss, how do you think mindfulness would help in that area? I think it would be a good way to kind of recognize how you're feeling and kind of. Because another aspect of mindfulness a lot of people talk about is the not judging of what you're thinking. And I think it's a good way to kind of come to terms with how you're feeling, letting yourself kind of deal with it, think it through, and allow you to kind of go through that and accept whatever's happening, and then allow you to kind of put the things that you think are negative or kind of things that you don't really want to continue on with and leave them where they are and then continue. I would think that mindfulness would be able to do that, but... Yeah, I think... Just allowing the time to grieve. Yeah. Well, you said, like, it's about sitting with your emotions and, like, seeing how it is. And a lot of times with grief, your emotions take over. And if you can sit with that, you know, and you can, and you can practice that, yeah, I can see it being beneficial. Like, hmm, what am I feeling right now? Rather than, oh, I want to push that away. I want to push the fear. I want to push that. Yeah. Well, you hear a lot of people who say after grief, they're like, I'm so busy. I have to do this. I have to do this. And you're kind of like, did you sit down and, like, Think about what just happened. It's when they actually sit down that they feel all those emotions. So if you're able to feel that at the time where everybody around you is going through it and all you're actually going through the different steps, that could be really beneficial to kind of not holding on to something that's gonna to sit with your own suffering. I think there's beauty in that and I think that yeah, mindfulness is, is, is what you're talking about. Yeah. Well John, it's been a wonderful conversation. We're gonna wrap it up here. Um, I'm excited to see what you have in the future with your Thank work. You. Mindfulness is very exciting. Obviously, I'm passionate about that subject. And is there any way, if uh, do you have any publications out there right now? Um, not yet. Okay. I just did a poster conference a couple weeks ago or last week, but hopefully in the near future there will be an MA thesis out there that's published. Okay, nice. Not whoever's listening. And um, publications to come, hopefully again. Okay, yeah. So if people want to reach you for whatever reason, maybe they're interested in this topic, I guess they can just go to the Brock University website yeah. and your email's on there? Yeah, under the grad students, you can find my email. Okay, everybody, just going to wrap up right now. You can find the newsletter available at griefdreams.ca. Uh, podcast will be available at podbean.com. Just look up Grief Dreams Podcast. Also on iTunes now, um, you just look up Grief Dreams Podcast. Which is very exciting. We were, you know, playing with the idea. I think now being up there, it just hits a, a larger audience. Yep, easier if you have an iPhone. As well, if you have any comments, questions, uh, you can hit us up at griefjamespodcast at gmail. griefjamespodcast at gmail.com. We did it. All right. Goodbye. <laughs>